Support for this episode comes from Lalaman Brewing. Lalaman Brewing, a division of Lalaman Inc., a global producer of yeast and bacteria, is helping breweries achieve their growth and quality goals by offering products, services and education. Lalaman Brewing's premium brewing yeast and bacteria deliver unmatched consistency, reliability and purity, allowing brewers to take full control of the brewing process. At the forefront of innovation, Lalaman Brewing recently launched several dried yeast products, Lalbrew Voss, Lalbrew Verdant IPA and Wildbrew Philly Sour. For more information about Lalaman products in the UK, please contact our local representative, Andrew Patson. Global contact details for the UK and other territories can be found via our website, lalamanbrewing.com. That's lalamanbrewing.com. I'm Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hop Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hop Forward is a weekly podcast dedicated to the craft beer industry, featuring interviews, discussions, and stories from the whole brewing supply chain from grain to glass. So grab yourself a glass, pour yourself a beer, and get ready to hop forward in the brewing and beer business. Hello, friends, and welcome to another session on the Hot Four podcast. Founded in 1980, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company is arguably one of America's premier craft breweries. Renowned for exclusively using whole cone hops, Sierra Nevada has set the standard for artisan brewers worldwide with beers like Torpedo, Bigfoot and their West Coast style stout. But it's the modern classic Sierra Nevada Pale Ale that thrust the brewery into the consciousness of consumers and has since long endured in the hearts of beer drinkers across the globe. I'm convinced that many, if not most, in the brewing industry can trace their journey back, at least in part, to that first time they discovered the golden amber-coloured ale, boasting all 38 of its International Bitterness Units, or IBUs, and the Cascade Hop, qualities which now in 2021 seem merely casual next to the extremities of juicy hazy neepers or pithy resinous West Coast IPAs. The beer that inspired founder Ken Grossman, of course, to brew Pale Ale was Fuller's ESB, a brewery that itself is predominantly known for its own flagship brand, London Pride. There's something poetic that the journey of Sierra Nevada has gone full circle, very much in the same way the Beatles and the Beach Boys played creative ping pong over the Atlantic, ramping up the volume on 60s psychedelia with each record. Yet it would be wrong to simply discard Pale Ale or even the Sierra Nevada brand as yesterday's brews, earning the been there, drunk that untapped badge. Over 40 years on, Sierra Nevada still retains allegiance from both faithful fans or the newbie to craft beer who is discovering Pale Ale for the first time with a sense of reverence and awe. And rightly so. Who hasn't stood at a shelf or at the bar and despite all the other exciting beers you've never tried and may never even get to, reached for a bottle or uttered the words, I'll have a pint of Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, please. Recently, The Beer O'Clock Show, a long-running podcast here in the UK, ran an exclusive episode featuring the much-sought-after Ken Grossman. If you haven't listened to that episode, I'd encourage you to go and listen to that first before this one. Steve and Martin did a cracking job of interviewing Ken and dissecting what everyone loves about those beers in such a fantastic way. 
But in this particular episode, we explore the brand through the eyes of Ian Newell, the European Managing Director for Sierra Nevada. We take a deep dive into the world of exporting beer from the USA into other territories. How and why Sierra Nevada, a 100% family owned, operated and argued over brewery based in both Chico and now Mills River, North Carolina, resonates with drinkers as far flung as Russia. And we explore the newly launched Cascade Club, a direct-to-drinker and business-to-business e-commerce platform, and what that means for both consumers and those who retail and dispense beer in the trade. It's evident from talking to Ian he is well-versed in the industry, working for Whitbread, AB InBev and Heineken, among others before assuming his position with Sierra Nevada, we managed to have some interesting dialogue on brewery acquisitions and how Sierra Nevada has managed to remain independent after all this time. Make sure you check out the cascadeclub.com which launched today and pick up some fresh Sierra Nevada beer. And before you crack open a can of Hayes little thing and listen to this episode, like reading the teeny tiny writing down the side of a beer label. Here's all the necessary blurb. If you like the Hot Forward podcast, then follow us on all the socials at Hot Forward Beers. Subscribe to the show and leave us a review on iTunes and Spotify and all of the good podcasting platforms. And visit our website, hotforward.beer, to connect with us and find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business with branding, creative media, and business consultancy for breweries, bars, bottle shops, and supply chain businesses. And finally, don't forget to thank our sponsors this week. Support for this episode comes from Lalaman Brewing. For more information about Lalaman products in the UK, please contact our local representative, Andrew Patson. Global contact details for the UK and other territories can be found via our website, lalamanbrewing.com. For now, grab a beer and let's crack open today's discussion. Today on the Hot Four podcast, I'm joined by Ian Newell, European Managing Director for Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Hello. Hi, Mick. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. How are you? Yeah, very well. Happy Monday. Indeed. Happy Mondays. <laughs> Twisting my melon, man. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh I had to get oh, that in. References. Oh, there you go. There you go. Do you know, I remember seeing the Happy Mondays supporting Oasis in 2000 at Wembley Stadium. They were brilliant. God, you're showing your age then. Yeah, indeed, yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, I, I'm, I'm confident that every listener um, to the show is, is well acquainted with Sierra Nevada. So... Um, rather than talking about the history of Sierra Nevada uh, Brewing Company, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about how you got involved in the company and a bit about yourself and your extensive background working in beer? Yeah, so look, um, so my role is to is to look after Sierra Nevada in Europe and a, and a couple of other outliers. So Russia, we've just started moving it into um, UAE, into Dubai. Um, but you know, we, we sell Sierra Nevada internationally into about 35 countries. Um, and I suppose Sierra Nevada, you know, people know it as a US business. And uh, you know, international is about 6% of our total volume. You know, we do about 1.3 uh, million US barrels. And um, I suppose my background is, you know, out of my 28 years of, um, of working uh, or being employed, you know, 23 of them have been within the beer industry. So I've had the pleasure of working for people like Whitbread, uh, Heineken. Um, and before I joined Sierra four years ago, I was with um, AB InBev, right. um, where I held a couple of roles like 
marketing director, sales director. And um, the, last, the last role I had at ABI was um, running what in the States they call ZX Ventures or ZX Ventures. Um, in the UK and Europe, we called it Pioneer Brewing Company. So this was the, I hate using words like disruptive, but it was the, it was the business that looked after brands outside of the core brands. Right. So, you know, things like Lef, Hugard and Spaten, uh, Louvenbrau. Um, but we also did the acquisitions. Um, so we also had the pleasure of, of meeting a whole bunch of, uh, of craft brewers from, you know, the big boys like Bustels uh, through to Jasper at, uh, at Camden to some really small ones that, you know, had just started sort of one, two years prior mm. to us having conversations. So it, it was a really great role. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, and Sierra came knocking and, uh, and for me, you know, it's one of those, one of those breweries that you kind of go, it, can it be as good as everyone says it is both in terms of, you know, their dedication to quality, um, the values that they kind of, uh, put behind their business uh, and what people say about actually working for Sierra. And, um, yeah, no, it, it is exactly what it is. You know, I mean, there's been a lot of people that have pioneered the beer industry, but you kind of look at Ken's story and I'm sure people know it better than I, but you know, you start looking at him back in the kind of late seventies in terms of introducing a, a beer brand at, uh, at 38 IBUs when the American market was used to 15 IBUs. Mm. Uh, and you know, it's just kind of his vision of kind of, I'm going to do things my way. It's all going to be about quality. It's going to be about, you know, trying to bring something to the American consumers that, that didn't really exist at that time. Uh, yep. So yeah, I, I love working for the business. I'm really grateful. Um, and uh, yeah, four years on, they still haven't found me out. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I mean, before we talk about Sierra, I've got to ask off the back of that um, about the acquisitions and, and what that was like, I guess, from your perspective, working for AB InBev, because obviously uh, you referenced Camden Town there. And I remember going to Camden Town um i can't remember it was like 2015 i think um and a guy i happened to meet this is through an old job i had so he took us to camden town brewery and i was like oh this is amazing you know so when i heard that camden town had sold to ab InBev, i was i was you know like a lot of beer fans really gutted and so obviously there's, there's a lot of like when, when that happens you know you, you i'm sure you're well acquainted with social media and you see the kind of social media outrage that happens but i'd, I'd love to know just from your perspective as somebody that was involved in that how that process worked and what the actual reality is and you know um on, on what a, a global company like kb InBev actually can bring to a, yeah, a, a smaller yeah. craft brewer like that i mean i think that you know abi has an awful lot of kind of uh, of merits and you know it, it's a beast you know and it's mm. really good at doing certain things i think that um there was recognition that what ABI maybe wasn't necessarily good was that that kind of that initial startup that being able to see something quite niche um, that needed a, maybe a different approach, different processes, uh, and you started looking at kind of these emerging of the of kind of these modern craft breweries um, that were just really good at just bringing bringing a brand to life from almost nothing and you know mm. if you look at kind of what jasper did with, with camden you know he, he went for a, a a beer style whether it's the pale ale or whether it's hellas that was just really approachable you know good good brewing both from you know jasper's brewers but also the contract brewer in in, um, in belgium um and you know they, they they just had an approach that was just something that you know a big beast 
really struggled doing. So you, when you started looking at kind of, um, you know, ABI in terms of, you know, what it wanted to do, it really wanted to find some of these gems that had kind of local provenance, you know, so I think when you start looking at, at, at the gap within uh, ABI's portfolio was having really neat breweries within key markets around the world and UK being being one of the, the, mm. the more attractive markets for, for the business. And then obviously, you know, it takes two to tango, um, you know, and I think at that time, you know, Camden Town were, were seeing immense growth. Um, they were looking for investment. I know obviously they did um, crowdfunding and A shares and B shares and so forth. Um, but they were also kind of, you know, had a vision of kind of wanting to grow. And, you know, fair play, they could have gone out into um, private equity uh, or, or they could have gone to banks to get the funding. But I think what um, Camden were looking for is they were looking for a partner that that could use that A was in beer, you know, and, and whatever people think about ABI, you know, their business is beer. Um, and I think, you know, the system strength or the sales force or or some of the slick processes that ABI are renowned for actually can help small businesses like Camden grow. And I think, you're right, as soon as that was announced, I can remember, you know, when we ended up doing the deal, it ended December 2015 and, um, you know, social media went wild and, and everyone has a pop at Jasper for selling out. But actually what he was doing, he was investing in his business to grow his business, working with a beer partner. And, um, you know, there'll always be people that kind of go, these kind of uh, founders of these craft brewers should never do this. My challenge is you do need capital to grow. You know, this market is becoming increasingly competitive. And I think you look what's happened in the last year, even before COVID, you know, the craft market is hitting an inflection point. You know, retailers are becoming more demanding about margins. The on-trade before COVID were becoming um, clearer in terms of what beer lines they were prepared to give up to craft, how much rotation nation they wanted, and therefore being part of a maybe a bigger business where you're part of a bigger portfolio helps these brands. And I think my view is, I think, you know, Camden have stayed true to their soul and their roots. And I think, you know, you know Camden is still Camden. It's just part of ABI now. Yeah. Um, so I guess just moving on to Sierra Nevada then, because like Sierra Nevada is still fully independent, right? So like how, I mean, it must be possible for businesses to remain independent and grow. Um, do, do you think Sierra Nevada is a bit of an outlier when it comes to that kind of thing? Just maybe because they were, you know, first of the post, um, you know, launching back in the, uh, 1980, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that um, timing is everything. Right. And I think that, um, you know, Ken, you know, Ken always said, you know, when he, when, when he launched, you know, he, he never envisaged his business would be as large as it is. And, mm. you know, but fair play to all the hard work he's done. But look, Sierra Nevada, family operated, 100%, family argued over. Um, you know, Ken's got two of his three children that are central to, to his business. Um, and, and the view is that, um, you know, this is going to be a family business for many generations. And I think, yeah. not that I know, but, you know, I'd imagine that, Ken and Sierra have been approached numerous times in terms of whether they're willing to sell. And, and you know, would have been when you started looking at the high multipliers, you know, three, four years ago, I'm sure that, that you know, that business would have been valued quite a lot of money. Um, but I think I do think, you know, the Sierra Nevada business kind of start where it started at and being part of that initial growth 
which allowed it to, to, to build its business, to build its reputation. You know, we have what, um, 1,300 um, staff, you know, we've got, you know, when you start looking at a couple of hundred sales guys, and we've got a good footprint in the States and in, international. So I think, I think it was timing. I think if, you know, maybe if it happened, you know, 20, 30 years later, we may be having a different discussion. Yeah, yeah. So to jump straight into the topic of the hour, Sierra Nevada have just launched the Cascade Club. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that is and how that came about? Yeah, so, um, you know, over the years, um, the Sierra Nevada Brewery gets emails from people around the world and in particular the UK saying, you know, I've been on your US website and I've seen this amazing life and limb or I've seen this amazing optimum. You know, where can I get it in the UK? And and those emails come to me. And to be honest, I, we didn't have a good enough answer for these consumers. You know, I think we've got a great relationship with the off trade. You know, when you start looking at the major retailers, we've got good distribution of our pale ale. Um, we've got good distribution of our Cali IPA. And I think, you know, that's allowed uh, a wider base of consumers to kind of get into the Sierra Nevada brand. And it's kind of triggered people kind of going, well, what else is available? Mm. So it really has come from just consumers and, and customers, you know, bottle shops, small off-trade wholesalers saying, look, we'd love to buy a case of uh, tropical torpedo. Um, and, you know, what we wanted to do was create something that was really easy for customers and consumers just to place an order. You know, we don't want it to be a bit of a war and peace. We want the, the website to be really easy to use for people to be able to press orders that they then get fresh beer you know, there's always a danger as we move stock uh, weekly from the US uh, to the UK in reefers and we store it in our chilled warehouse. We want to make sure that the beer is as fresh as possible, um, considering you're shipping it you know, across the pond. Mm. So look, we launched, um, we're launching the Cascade Club, www.thecascadeclub.com this week. And um, we're offering the full range of our Sierra Nevada products, you know, um, from our all year round, uh, which, you know, things like uh, our hazy, our hazy US, our hazy UK, um, wild little thing, which is our, which is our sour. Um, we're also offering um, all the seasonal. So we've, we've got Bigfoot out at the moment, then we're moving into Optimum. Uh, and then we also all our high, high altitudes, you know, things like Narwhal, um, but also what we wanted to do is to use this site um, to launch MPD. So, you know, as you know, that, you know, the, the craft market is now getting nibbled from beer adjacencies, near beers, FMBs, whatever you want to call them. Mm. And, um, you know, we want to use this as an opportunity to, to talk directly to consumers about, wild, uh, you know, um, Strange Beast, which is our um, kombucha that we've launched uh, in the States. Or there's um, a couple of MPDs that are towards directionally towards seltzers that it would be great to bring into the UK and just get consumers and customers just to try it b before you start ramping it up, um, just to kind of sort of almost test and learn. Yep. So, so the site is about you know, bringing product that you can't currently get in, into the UK, make sure that it is as fresh as possible, make sure that the minimum order levels are as small as possible, um, but also the site allows us to sort of just test new things that, that the US gets to see that UK doesn't until either it's launched or uh, it's been and gone. And I think that's a miss for the UK. Yeah. 
I mean, usually global brands will either opt for a brewing market model or use distributors, as Sierra Nevada have been currently been doing, um, to distribute their products to any you know market in a given territory. I mean, other than the the, the freshness aspect of it, um, you know, and I I have to say I'm quite excited to you know buy and drink a, a pale ale as fresh as it can be because you know you, you hear these stories of like oh you want, you really want to try it you know um across the pond in the states you know it's, it's like mm-hmm. just those fresher obviously why has sierra nevada opted to ship beers to a uk warehouse and distribute them exclusively exclusively via a logistics service rather than doing that brewing market model like something like um, one of your competitors um who should remain nameless, but is mm-hmm. a, a has has a a brand of lager on the east coast, should we say? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah look, I think um, you know we've we've looked uh, we've looked at um, local production. We've looked at um, moving uh, stock in 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 bladders and packing over here. I think it comes down to a couple of things. Firstly, you know we have two very efficient breweries uh, in the States. And we use whole cone hops, um, which is a bit of a rarity uh, across across the world in terms of mm. brewers. So, so even when you start looking at some of the best brewers in Europe, um, the business would have to invest quite a lot in CapEx to brew it how Ken wants it brewed. And, and I think, you know, when you're dealing with, with a business that is a stickler for how it wants to do it, how it believes it is the right way of doing it for Sierra Nevada. You're always into that, yeah, we like this brewery, but we'd have to change this, we'd have to do this. And when you've got an efficient brewery uh, and you look at um, the cost of freight movement, it's actually beneficial to carry on brewing it in your own brewery um, than it is to brew it somewhere else that you may have to put into CapEx that you then will have to pay brewing charges and then there's just the control um you know when you're when you're brewing pale ale every week you know our brewers are pretty good at doing it and um we end up in the uk because we're moving three three to four containers reefers a a week Uh, if you go to a supermarket today you will end up being drinking a pale ale that will be either december or January dated, so either December end of mm. 2021 or January 2022 best before date. So you're drinking beer that's sort of eight weeks old, and bear in mind, you know, nearly two weeks of that is secondary fermentation for the for the pale ale bottle. Um, so yeah, look, we've we've looked at how do you both from a margin point of view, but also from an environmental point of view. You know, Sierra Nevada. You know, if you start looking at its approach to sustainability, to its environmental footprint, um, you know, whatever we do in the States, um, you know, we're trying to minimize the, the impact that we make. So if you look at our, our Mills River Brewery in, in Asheville, North Carolina, you know, that, that kind of got um, LEAVE Platinum um, certification. Um, so in, in the States, that means that you, you've pretty much used all the resources of that land, you've made very, very little impact to the, 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 the development. So, you know, we ended up cutting down quite a lot of trees, but we used all those trees as part of uh, the brewery, you know, mm. in terms of solar panels, in terms of, you know, we've got this thing called a hot rot that um, takes all of our uh, food waste uh, and beer waste and then turns it into um, 
compost within two two weeks. Um, so so you then start looking at kind of well, is it more sustainable to um, to look at brewing locally versus the quality that we believe we get versus the cost. So long-winded, we've looked at a whole bunch of different methods. Um, we still believe the best approach for our business is to brew it in our brews yep. in place. I guess with a business model such as the Cascade Club, and I, and I guess I'm focusing more on the trade aspects. Mm-hmm. There's, there's going to be like a trade gateway where you yeah. can place an order, you know, for your own off license. With a business model that almost bypasses some of the traditional distributors, how will a brand like Sierra Nevada retain goodwill amongst the industry by, in essence, I suppose, cutting out the middleman? Because I, I remember when I first started my beer brand, Emmanuel's, mm-hmm. back in 2014, talking to my business mentor. He, he, he wasn't from the brewing industry, but he had a marketing background, worked with some huge companies. And, um, you know, he, he's his I remember him saying to me, like, you know, you want to retain your margins and sell direct to consumer as much as possible. And I learned, and so I, I went into the beer industry with that mindset of like, well, that makes sense because obviously you want to retain, you want to make as much money as you can. That's, you know, if you want to profit in a business, that's what you do. But then I learned very quickly that um, that was almost frowned upon in the beer industry because it was kind of like, well, these are all these other, you know, independent businesses, bottle shops, et cetera, bars that are, um, you know, trying to, make their profit and it's almost felt a little bit clunky doing that so and i would imagine if if a a bar can go on and and buy a keg of pale ale direct from the cascade club then there might be a whole bunch of distributors who are like hang on a minute you know you're cutting us out of the equation like how how would you respond to that kind of thing or or have i got the wrong end of the stick with what's going on or The, the first thing is the cascade club is just packaged right so we're not doing oh right okay so but I would also say that um, our beers have been available for people to order for a good few years. You know, the mm. challenge has always been in terms of uh, minimum order quantities. So, you know, our breweries have, um, you know, it's a, a pretty big old outfit in Mills River. And, you know, they require us to order, you know, on the pallet levels. So if you then say, OK, Mr. Off-Trade Retailer, you, you can order, you can order whatever you want. You know, I'm happy to place it and put it on a container and bring it over, but you've got to order a pallet load. Right. They're going to go, go actually, I've got to order 200, 200 cases. Gee, that's, that, I'm not going to do that, both from a cash flow point of view, both from, you know, you're going to have to have an awful lot of stock rotation to get through that. So I think, you know, the Cascade Club from a trade point of view is, is set up so, you know, a trade, so a bottle shop can go in and, and place an order for just one case. And get a get a pretty good price, you know, landed price, um, or they can order ten or more cases and get a, you know, what, almost giving it away, Nick. But you know, it's um, you know, it's very competitive. So, mm. so I think that you know, for us, for Sierra Nevada, this is about you know widening its availability to consumers, and and I think pricing levels are related to order levels. So if you're a small little bottle shop. Um, you know, I still think, you know, our beers need to be communicated. You know, you still, you know, you still need, you know, the bottle shops to be able to wax lyrical about Sierra Nevada and to talk about the product to its its consumers. And so, you know, offering the ability for that that bottle shop to say, look, I'm just going to order one 12 pack of um, Trip in the Woods, for instance. You know, I think that that for us, we believe that that is a service that we've been asked for. Um, mm-hmm. 
And I think that, you know, for those off-trade off -trade wholesalers that still want to order 20 cases, 30 cases, because they've got their consumer base, you know, they, they can do it and, and the pricing is geared to reflect what you order. I'd also, sorry, I'd also say that, you know, the way that the trade is set up is that um, rather than the Cascade Club having its warehouse full of lots of beers, is we've got a relatively small inventory to start with. But if someone wants to order 30 cases, um, those orders get automatically added to a container. Mm. And then the freshest beer from the States then get added to that container. So that when it arrives, you haven't had beer that's been sitting in a warehouse, even if it's a chilled warehouse for like three months. You've had it coming, you know, within five, six weeks straight from the brewery. Yeah. So as hospitality venues start to reopen in the coming weeks and months, yeah. how much do you think the e-commerce business model will continue to endure for beer drinkers and trade customers alike? And do you think that the pandemic in some ways is the technological jolt that the industry is needed to get up to date? Because from my experience until 2020, the, the beer industry has been quite analog in the way that people have bought and sold beer. And um, before this time last year like most breweries didn't have a web shop you know it wasn't some of that and, and the ones that did didn't really put much trade through it again coming back to the whole thing about no no you know you sell through bottle shops and so on rather than like having people come to you directly to buy your beers so i mean obviously people are itching to get back to a pub or a bar or wherever they they drink beer communally but like how much do you think e-commerce is here to stay or do you think some of it will die off or do you think that's it now that the kind of you can't stuff the cat back into the bag so to speak yeah i i think you know um as much as you know covid19 has been horrendous for for a lot of business in particular in the hospitality industry i, I do think e-commerce is is here to stay. I think it is only going to get bigger as a as as a as one of the ways of getting product to the end customer or end consumer. You know, if you if you look at alcohol versus um, a lot of other um, categories, alcohol has been kind of um, you know a couple of steps behind a lot of categories in terms of how they used e-commerce or or a DTC direct to consumer modeling. Um, and if you just look at from an off-trade point of view, so I think off-trade um, volume share went from just over 4% to just over 8.5% last year in terms of amount of volume that went through an e-commerce portal. Now, some of that's obviously um, the retailer's own, but then obviously you've got these um, beer specialist e-com sites um, that, that you know do a great job. And I, I do think you know what this has done is to your point, it has jolted the market in terms of, you know, there's not necessarily just one way of getting beer, you know, and there are always going to be winners and losers. But I do think from a consumer point of view, I think e-commerce is, is beneficial in terms mm. of it does allow them to get, um, you know, what they want in a quantity that they want in a time that they want at, at a pricing level that makes sense. and. I do think that um, it, it it will challenge you know some of the uh, the old guard to your point in terms of you know where analog was always the way and and actually the, their business models were set to deliver on an analog model. But to your point, toothpaste is out of the toothpaste box. We're never going to put it back. 
my question is kind of, um, you know, what percentage of the alcohol market will be um, direct to consumer or direct to customer through some form of e-com model? Um, I can never see it going backwards, though. And actually, from a brand owner point of view, you know, it does help, you know, build your brand, communicate what's coming on. And, and if you, you're doing that directly and, and I think, you know, consumers have become quite demanding in consumers and customers in terms of, you know, I want it tomorrow, um, you know, and I don't want to pay silly prices uh, and I want to know about what I'm going to order. So I do think e-com digital is good for brands because it just opens up that speed of communication about what's coming down the tracks. Yeah. I mean, I think from a, a marketing point of view, um, you know, it's it, it's really made, it being the pandemic has really made brewers pay more attention to how they present themselves online and how they market and communicate themselves. I mean, if you take a platform like Instagram, for example, you know, mm -hmm. until this time last year, you know, you mostly get a photo of a beer, you know, and or, or, oh, look, here's a brewer digging out some malt. And, and and that was it, you know, and it's and all of a sudden when everyone was thrust online and all of a sudden you had this competition of buy my beer, come to my shop, buy my beer. You had to stand out and differentiate yourself in some other way. And it's good to now start to see brewers who are taking seriously that role of, you know, employee marketing managers or um, subcontracting um, that role out to, to somebody else who's got more nous online about how all that works. Um, and I, I think that's been needed. And I, I personally can't see as going backwards, back to just, you know, oh, let's go back to the way things were. Because actually, I've, I've talked to brewers who have produced less beer, sold less volume, but have made more money because they've sold direct to consumer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think you know. But my bottom thing is, I think there's there's an opportunity and a role for a whole bunch of route to market. Yeah, I just think this is just a new one that people are finding out. You know how to do it properly, um, and you know what percentage it plays of their mix. Yeah. So looking a little wider at the Sierra Nevada brand, why do you think, especially here in the UK and Europe and and Russia, as you mentioned earlier, and other territories, mm. why, why do you think that story still resonates with consumers and and with brewers in the industry in the same way? that it does back in Sierra Nevada's native homeland? I think, um, I think first thing is, I think that there's, there's some truisms about the Ken Grossman Sierra Nevada story. Mm. You know, it, there's no veneer to it. You know, there, it, it's, you know, I think it's a story that people can kind of, you know, can get their arms around and kind of go, wow, actually this, this guy, you know, created um, his first brew house from dairy equipment. You know, he taught himself how to sterilize well. You know, he taught himself how to do micro microbes uh, in terms of QC and QA training. So I think you know, you know, there's very much you know, right place, right time. But the principles and 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 the values that Ken brought to his business. I think the second thing is is um, beer quality, beer consistency. Uh, if you if you just take our pale ale. Um, you know, people will say it's actually a really well-balanced beer, mm. um, you know, and 40 years ago, 37 IBUs, nine out of 10 people thought that uh, Ken was on drugs and um, <laughs> it would never work. Whereas now, actually, you know, it's actually seemed to be quite an, I don't want to use the words like gateway or entry, but it, it's quite an accessible pale ale at 37, 38 IBUs. 
Um, but I also think it's, you know, things like Sierra Nevada, it, it is a, that balance between ensuring that the core brand, so whether that's Pale Ale, Torpedo, um, are brewed to the same consistency and quality, but also bringing in new news. And it is always that balance with brewers in terms of, you know, making new stuff versus selling and building, you know, your, your core bit of your brand. And I think that um, anything that goes out the door of our breweries, um, you know, has to hit a certain um, standard. So we may not be first to market. So we weren't first to market um, with Hazy, mm. with that Hazy style. But I think we, we're pretty pleased with the performance of, of our Hazy little thing in the States. You know, that's done well for us over the last three years. You know, we're not first to, um, you know, kombucha or seltzers, but we'd like to think that the product and the brand um, have been well thought through, you know, well tested. So I think that there's, um, I think that A, you know, people like the story of Sierra Nevada, B, they like the products that come out of the brewery. And I also think that they kind of know what they're going to get, mm. you know, with like pale ale, you know, there's, there's always a danger that you try new stuff and you're not going to like it. Um, but I think Sierra Nevada has built up a reputation of delivering quality and consistency. And then to your point, you know, it's stayed true to its values. You know, it hasn't, hasn't sold. Um, it, it still fundamentally believes that, you know, family owned, family operated and family argued is the right way of building their Sierra Nevada business. And, yeah. You know, um, I think a lot of a lot of brewers, myself included, uh, you know, owe it to Sierra Nevada for for their brewing journey. The the two beers that were really fundamental when I first started brewing beer at home, you know, about seven years ago now, um, one of which was Jaipur from Thornbridge, and the other was Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. You know, I I would kick back those two beers as much as you can, you know, at that ABV um, <laughs> over a course of a, a, a brew day. Um, you know, but I would kick those beers back and, and dream of being like the next Sierra Nevada or the next Thornbridge, you know, and it's, it is a timeless beer. And as I said before we start recording, and just for the benefit of the tape, anyone that's listened to this, if they've, if they've not heard the Beer O'Clock show where Ken Grossman was on with Steve and Martin, you know, go and listen to that and you'll, you'll just hear that sentiment echoed, not just from them, but from some of the brewers that they got on the show to talk about the legacy of Sierra Nevada. So I, I guess off the back of that, from, from your role, um, you know, overseeing the brand in the UK and Europe and other territories, what are some of the biggest challenges of growing a legacy brand like Sierra Nevada in a region like Europe? Yeah, I think it's... Um... there's there's a real danger in our marketplace that um it's all about new news and Mm. if something's been around for a couple of years it's kind of been and gone and you know and there's always a role for um for people that just want to continually experiment or or what i call tickers you you know that that will go on to certain websites um and uh, go to certain trade shows or consumer shows and, and and drink stuff that they've never drunk before because they can tick a box and, you know, great, if that's what you want to do, brilliant. But from a business point of view, you can't, you can't make a business out of those types of consumers. Mm. You have to make a business out of um, building your brand that people will drink regularly. And, and the, the trade are becoming far more sophisticated and far more um, demanding in terms of rate of sale, uh, in terms of margin pool. Um, you know, and as the craft market we're now beginning to see, uh, and I'm talking off trade predominantly, 
um, we're starting to see shelf space being squeezed as these retailers need to find shelf space for new products or higher margin categories that they're getting, you know, BWS or beer, wines and spirits, buying team are getting beaten up by other categories to have more, more space for other categories. You have to make sure that you've got a product that is selling regularly. And, and bringing in new products every five minutes isn't something Mr. Retailer wants to do and isn't necessarily for, for us, for Sierra Nevada, the right way of, of building. That comes with a challenge in terms of how do you maintain um, your distribution of pale ale? You know, you do that through ensuring that um, you're building a, a good consumer understanding behind the pale ale brand that, that drives sales, that then drives permanency on shelf. The difficulty is, is when you're looking at um, certain um, customers that, that, that just want new news. Yeah. And you get to the point where you kind of go, is that something that we can play? Is that something that Sierra Nevada can do um, by, you know, keep on bringing in every five minutes a new product? And, and it isn't just because of the size of our business, you know, in terms of the brew lengths that we have to make, you know, the, the cost and time it takes to build a brand in terms of packaging and, you know, the dry good materials. We are, we are kind of constrained by some of our, our size that, um, you know, we're, we're really good at producing some really great beers and then on the side, creating some new news. But our business model is about, you know, how do we have some really big SKUs that drive the majority of yep. our production volume? That's interesting. And I, I need to think how to offer my reflection on that. Um, I guess just from my own perspective and my own experiences of trying to start a brewery and launch a brand and um, a beer brand that was more brand driven than, um, you know, a lot of the breweries that are basically producing different beers time and time again. Because I, I found that bottle shops and pubs would lap up, you know, the latest new beer um, because I wasn't a, you know, a, a tried and tested, well-established brewer. So they, they, you know, I, I put something new out. Yeah, I'll have one of them. I'll have two of them, whatever. But then you go back again and say, oh, great. How did that beer sell? Oh, it was amazing. We got through that cask in like, you know, several hours. Oh, brilliant. Do you want any more? Nah, I'm good, mate. What new have we got? And you tend to find for, for smaller brewers that that's just, uh, it's a treadmill they get on and they mm -hmm. can't get off of. Yeah. Um, and, and so I guess with your extensive background of which you've got a lot of background and, and knowledge work in the industry, like how would you encourage any brewers out there that aren't just kind of, you know, it, it's more of a lifestyle business. They want to just brew different beers and that's fine. You know, uh, for me, with my brewing is more of a side project, you know, commercial side project. It doesn't have to pay my bills. I can just brew whatever I want and explore with different styles and stuff. That's fine. But for anyone that's kind of like, it is their bread and butter and they want to build a robust business that's going to go the course. Like what kind of words of advice would you offer to them about um, maybe getting off that treadmill if they're on it so that they can really hone in and develop their brand and maybe one or two core products? If you kind of look at quite a lot of the kind of um, breweries that have done, done well over the last sort of 10 years, you know, they have had a couple of anchor skews. So you mentioned Yalpur, uh, of Thornbridge. Um, you know, if you look at Brewdog, uh, if you look at Camden, yep. you know, if you look at Lagunitas, you know, 
most of them will have you know a couple of anchor or core you know bookend SKUs that um, help define what their brand's about. And um, you're right, you're absolutely right in terms of you know if the model works for someone to just do new stuff, that then then great. But you're almost setting yourself up for people to say, "What have you got new?" Because right. I've kind of expected you just to kind of keep on bringing stuff out. Um, and then also from a consumer point of view, if consumer goes into a into a pub or a bottle shop and buys a particular product and really likes it, and then goes back the following week and can't find it, you know there is that knock on effect in terms of disappointment, not only not not being able to get that product again, but disappointment on the the, the brand itself in terms of well, you know, shame they couldn't have done a little bit more um, you know continuation of a product, even though it may not be the brewer's fault that. That actually, you know, for me, the real thing is to make sure that you, you've got a product that has a real point of, you know, there's a reason for it being there. Um, so, you know, like pale ale, you know, the point of it being there was it was started with a Cascade hop. Um, you know, it, it, it again, 40 years ago, things were different. You know, dare I say it, that the, the marketplace wasn't easier, but it was it, it was there was less players in the marketplace. Mm. I think there were 40 brewers in the States at that time. Um, but I think, you know, hanging your hat on something, they always, the terrible thing about, you know, um, stand for something or fall for everything. And, you know, being, being known for something, I think is really important. And I think, you know, increasingly in this marketplace where it is tough to get new distribution, you know, it's important to actually have you know one or two SKUs that define what you're about. That doesn't mean that you can't have satellite or seasonals uh, that, that that help reinvigorate your brand um, and also target those accounts that do want new news. But I, I, you know, for instance, with pale ale, I always say, you know, when we were looking at the on trade, is you know we we got to stand or fall by pale ale. We can't just keep on offering new kegs. You know, people can have new kegs, but we'd really like them to support our pale ale. So it's a it's a bit of a kind of a two way street. Mm. <clears throat> you know, really really excited to work with you, Mister Pub, on you know our wider portfolio. But we're looking for you know whether it's fridge space or whether it is a two out on a on a on a bar, and we'll keep pale ale of permanency, and then we'll do a rotational on the second line. But you're right getting into this kind of vein of every week, every month, bringing in a, a new product, you're setting your stall out. That's what the Mr. Customer is going to expect from you. Yeah. I'd, I'd not really thought of it like that, but I can see how you'd, you'd kind of be in some way shooting yourself in the foot if then you would change your business model. But, you know, I, I guess some, some beers, um, I, you know, I guess like pale ale get a life of their own and, and, and take off. And then before you know it, you know, you're on a different treadmill altogether because people just, there's just something about that beer. I mean, again, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is just, there is just something about it that um, just takes so many different boxes for so many different people. You know, it, it is a modern classic. Um, and again, I, you know, t t timing. I mean, I, I'm not saying that, you know, uh, other things weren't lined up. But timing is so important, you know, being at the right place at the right time. Uh, you know, I, I've seen a lot of brands that you kind of look at and kind of go, that should really work. But either were too late or too yeah. ahead of, it, of the curve that just didn't hit that kind of that fast lane. Um, and, and, you know, thank goodness Sierra, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale 
did that. Yeah. Had a whole bunch of stuff lined up, but also, you know, timing was right. Yeah. I'm, al- I'm also quite interested to know, how has Brexit changed the way that products are imported from America to the UK? Cause, uh, and forgive, forgive my ignorance about the whole Brexit and EU process and everything. Has has that actually brought any benefit for importing products from the USA to the, to the UK? Or is the whole thing just a complete and utter shower of? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, to be honest, the um, US to UK um, hasn't really changed. Right hasn't really changed in terms of processes. I mean, look, it's been a bugger's muddle in terms of shipping vessels, um, reefers, so refrigerated um, containers. Most of them are in Asia, so there's very little, um, there's not enough reefers uh, in the East Coast or West Coast of the States. You know, COVID, again, uh, what hasn't it affected, but it's had a really impact on um, port workers. So I think uh, last article I wrote read was that nearly a third of all port workers have been affected by COVID. So there's a whole lot of delays of getting uh, containers on and off vessels. Right. Um, trucking in the States is a, is a big challenge. Um, there's not enough truckers. Um, so trying to get your beers from the brewery to a port tends to be a problem. And then you get the shipping vessels because there's been so much disruption. Shipping vessels aren't in the right place at the right time. There's quite a lot of what we call blank sailings. So where, you know, it's going to stop off at, you know, five ports and actually it starts loading its containers. It's running late. So it will, it will kind of almost cancel one of the ports that it will sell to. And if that's the UK, then, you know, if, you're, if your stuff is on a vessel, you then got to use feeder vessels from other parts. Right. The bit that Brexit has impacted is um, we used to run... Um, Going back a few years ago, we used to run small um, uh, distributors in Europe from the UK. So from the US, we just ship full containers. But if you've got a small market like uh, Austria or Norway that would only want to take two pallets, we used to service it from, from the UK. Uh, obviously, with, with Brexit, that was going to be a nightmare, even before we knew what a nightmare this would ended up being. So we ended up using um, uh, our importer in Ireland called Grand Cru, which is based in Dublin, as our importer of record. And, and we then get the smaller markets to now order via Republic of Ireland. So it's all within the European Union. Everything moves under EMCS. Um, and, and so, but if we'd, if we'd stayed within the UK as managing those uh, smaller markets, it, it would have been a nightmare. I mean, even... Um, for those listeners that get excited about custom movements in, from old days, you used to have to do EX75 and EX76 forms and SAAD forms. Um, that doesn't really kind of work now. You know, so actually it's really difficult when your beer has already been bonded, it's, it's in free circulation, sorry, um, to then move that stock out of the UK into Europe. It, it, the world has changed. Um, so I think, you know, I, I feel sorry for those breweries in the UK that are trying to move stuff into Europe. It must, uh, it must move their follicles from their head. Yeah, well, I'm aware that these brewers who are struggling to move beers from Northern Ireland to England. Oh, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. crazy yeah. times. The freight companies, you know, the freight companies, um, of course, we're all running a business, but the freight companies have either said, um, because it's such a ball lake, we're not going to run those particular routes, 
or we're going to run those routes, but A, it's going to cost you three, four times as much. Um, and B, you know, it could take three or four weeks just to kind of move like 500, 600 miles. Uh, yeah, it's a real, uh, yeah, it's a real challenge for those brewers that are trying to move stuff. Crazy times. Um, well, j just a couple of questions to, to round off today then. Um, f firstly, um, Sierra Nevada focus, then secondly, a bit wider focus. So f firstly, how do you envision the Sierra Nevada brand growing in the UK and Europe over the next few years? And then the last question is just to round it up, like looking at the wider industry, wh where do you see that heading over the next year or so and what trajectory do you think we're on? And how do you see the two of those kind of playing out together? Uh, from a Sierra Nevada point of view and a wider industry perspective. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, so from a Sierra Nevada point of view, uh, I, I and we still believe that there is um, good growth to happen in, in parts of Europe. I mean, uh, you know, from a state's point of view, there's a danger that they just look at Europe as like an homogenous country. <laughs> um, you know, we've got different parts of, uh, of Europe at different stages of maturity of, of craft beer. Um, you know, for those that, you know, markets like the Nordics that really came into the craft market very early on um, and then saw a massive explosion of domestic craft. Uh, we know that um, in Sweden, in the Systembolaget, the uh, monopoly controlled retailer, that, um, you know, imported craft has been hit quite hard over the last 12 months. Uh, and that's really on the back of just domestic growth and, you know, domestic brewers becoming much better about quality and consistency. But I still think that, you know, there are markets like Spain, there's markets like France, uh, Netherlands, that we believe that there's still growth for Sierra Nevada. Um, Germany, you know, we, we, we ended up putting uh, a Sierra Nevada guy in, in Germany a year and a half ago, um, just before the pandemic. Mm. But, um, you know, we're seeing the German market, you know, which is, historically quite a domestic, even a, a regionally driven market. I mean, you know, they're pretty good at brewing themselves. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we are seeing, you know, growth of kind of craft brands, both international and domestic. Um, so I think, you know, from a Sierra Nevada point of view, uh, you know, and if my boss is listening, I'm going to keep my volume numbers quite low, single digit. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the massive explosion that we saw in craft over the last, you know, five, eight years, I think is going to slow. I think it's going to slow because um, we're getting new categories that are coming through. We're getting retailers that are looking for kind of new news to, to drive further excitement. Uh, I think that um, for, for, for people that are starting craft breweries today, I think it's I think it's going to be quite a challenge and I think you've got to have a real reason for being mm. um, that makes you distinct and relevant and salient. Um, and I think that um, we're going to see, you know, if you, if you look back over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years from like Hooch and Two Dogs, um, for those that can remember it oh, back remember in, Hooch, yeah. <laughs> in the early 90s. And then you had things like, you know, Tungsten and Carling Premier and... Caffrey's, you know, you had that nitro blur. Yep. And then you had, you know, beer adjacencies of, you know, um, of 
uh, Bacardi Breezer and Smirnoff Ice and, you know, at Whitbread, we had a whole bunch of things, you know, you know whether it was Wild You're taking or, me right or, back now with all these beers, like <laughs> Bud Ice and all that. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, no, absolutely. So you had, you know, everything's quite cyclical and, and, and actually innovation cycles have got smaller in terms of period of time. And, and, and I think that's why I think it's so important that craft brewers define themselves as brands in their own right, rather mm. than getting just immersed in this category that retailers can dismiss and move on to seltzers or you know the whatever the next movement will be um so i think it's going to craft brewers are going to have to work harder to maintain their volume uh, i think they're going to have to to invest more time and money into brand building yeah i think you know when a category is growing you can just build on those rational facts you know the fact that you're using um you know particular hops or you're you've got a particular style of brewing or here's your brewmaster, doesn't he look great? But as the category matures, you need to give the consumers that aren't necessarily that bothered about SARS hops a reason to build your brand. And that's what the mark that, you know, I think marketing is, is the be all and end all. But I think people in the craft world need to pay more attention to building a brand, both rationally and emotionally. Um, yeah. But yeah. look, we wouldn't be in this. None of us would be in this industry if it was, you know, easy. We do it because actually, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it throws up challenges every day. And and um, yeah, working for a brand like Sierra in a category like craft is is is, is not a bad way of spending uh, spending your time. Yeah, but well, I absolutely one hundred percent agree about building a brand. I mean, that's what my business basically does: build brands. But it, you know, it's. And I don't mean any disrespect to any brewerist to this, but you know, um, when I come across brewers up on the website, you know, about using the finest ingredients, I, I think, well, surely all brewers use the finest ingredients. No one's going to be like, we use skunky hops that have oxidized, you know, malt that's a bit damp, and the water that is just awful, and yeast that was scraped off a shoe. Like, you know, and it's, and I, I think to, to really go the course, you've really got to invest in your brand. And I, so, yeah, um, and I, I just think it's been great chatting to you today. Obviously, you've got a really good handle on on brand building and and the the beer industry. So, thank thanks for being on the show. Um, how can people connect with you if they want to sort of connect with you personally? And how, how can people join the Cascade Club and place an order of very fresh pale ale and other luscious Sierra Nevada beers? Yeah, look, I mean, look, it'd be great even if people just go and explore and see what's on that site. Um, so, yeah, it's www dot thecascadeclub.com um, and then just register and then you're off um, and we've got um, we've got stock that's uh, that's that's in our warehouse today ready to be bought so um yeah and then you know i'm on linkedin so uh, people can find me on linkedin um uh, for those that want to want to hear more brilliant thank you that's great thanks for your time nick really appreciate it well, it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot 4 podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. We make your beer look as good as it tastes and we help you brew up a better business through branding, marketing and consultancy. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week. Cheers.